Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential, episode 150. That's 150, as in Ben's IQ, or two of my IQs, probably. I'm Chris Chimes. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Chris. Thanks for that. That number is hard to believe, but it's terrific to see that the podcast keeps growing. We had our best week ever this month with more than 8,000 downloads over a seven-day period. I think Joe Rogan and the guys at Smartless can hear our footsteps catching up to them or maybe our airplane wings flying into them, Chris. <laughs> Uh, well, the only way I can ever catch up to somebody running is downhill, so gravity <laughs> helps me pick up speed. But we've got another airline CEO joining us this week. Bjorn Larson is the founder and CEO of Norse Atlantic Airways, so that'll be a good conversation. We'll get right to him after a few news items. First up, here in the U.S., the U.S. DOT and the White House are turning up the heat on airlines operating in the U.S. after a dismal summer of operations, although, frankly, it's in some ways it feels like it hasn't been as bad as it could have been, if that makes sense. DOT Secretary Buttigieg called the summer cancellations unacceptable, directed airlines to do more to provide meal and hotel vouchers to stranded passengers, and said that the DOT would publish a dashboard by Labor Day so consumers can have better information about the reliability of the individual carriers. And it seems to be been its focus just on the U.S. carriers. According to the DOT, U.S. carriers canceled 3.2% of their operations and 24% of their flights were delayed for the first six months of 2022. FlightAware data says 40,000 flights have been canceled in the U.S. since the start of June. So what does Ben say? Well... Airlines are not out of their operational funk, Chris. And I think you're right in your perception that it could have been worse because I think it was worse a few months ago and certain days in the summer. But the industry has recovered in a sense, but to a level that still everyone, I think every airline CEO and everyone involved would say is unacceptable in terms of too many cancellations, too many delays. Delays. Now, interestingly, Chris, I saw Mark Dombroff, one of our former guests on the show, on TV talking about this exact issue. And the point he made was that while he appreciated the secretary sort of having this view that the industry needs to do more for customers, he thought it was really unfair to be pointing only at airlines, that you had to look at airlines, you had to look at union groups, you had to look at air traffic control and the FAA, and you needed to get everyone in a room together and airport leaders, he added that too, and need to get everybody together to say, how can 
we make this better? And by only looking at the airlines and say, you have to do better when at least some percentage of these operational mess ups are out of their control. When air traffic control isn't staffed, or when an airport like in Europe says you can't fly as many flights, that hasn't happened here, of course, and such. So I thought his take was really good. Now, Chris, I have to own up to something. I've been somewhat critical of Secretary Buttigieg essentially ignoring airlines in his tenure as DOT secretary. I can't say that anymore because he's not ignoring them. One thing he's asked for is sort of a cash refund in the event that a customer is delayed more than three hours. I'm sure airlines will have something to say about that. Any sort of answers that require more cash refund or free hotel stay if customers are forced to stay overnight, all those end up being cost to the airline that'll ultimately get reflected back in ticket price. And I'm sure the secretary isn't thinking of that consequence when he proposes those. A4A has come out with the facts of I think it was something like $21 billion in cash refunds have been given in the last 12 months. I think they wanted that to sound like a really big number. I'm not sure whether that means, you know, 100% of the people who wanted a refund got it or only 1%, right? So, um, <laughs> I, I don't think it was 100%. I'm just going to go out on a limb here, but go ahead. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't 100 but, you know, they they clearly wanted that $21 billion number in there because it's a big number, but I don't know what that really means you know, in terms of what the secretary is suggesting the industry does for cancellations going forward. I think the key here, Chris, is that it's great that the secretary is focusing on the industry and says, hey, let's all be better toward customers. But I really like Mark Dombroff's message of airlines alone can't just solve this. It's got to be airlines plus air traffic control, plus the airports. Everyone with a stake in making the system work has to want it to be better and invest proportionally in terms of what they can do to make it better. A couple of points, Ben. Uh, To your earlier point, DOT and Mr. Secretary, where you been? The summer's over. Why are you going to publish a dashboard at the end of the summer when the peak travel season's kind of over? I get that it's useful consumer information, but this kind of action at the end of a busy summer travel season doesn't really help all the consumers that have been impacted. That's one observation. Two, airline executives, there's no free lunch. You've been given a lot of money over the past two years, all well and good and deserved to keep the industry going. I'm not arguing with that. But those funds do come with some expectations. And while you've been working hard to live up to those, I don't think uh, you've hit the mark all the time. So this is somewhat to be expected. It's really not surprising. And it's been hinted at for a while that the operational issues are unacceptable. And they are. I, you know, I, was, I found it curious, for example, that airlines oftentimes have pointed to staffing shortages as a reason beyond their control and haven't been providing hotels and meal vouchers 
for passengers who are stuck. When typically you, know, you point to the weather as a reason we have to cancel flights, and that's beyond our control. A staffing shortage or a crew not showing up or being available, that generally is under the airline's control. Granted, the crew might be stuck somewhere else because of weather, but you have reserves and you have a system to operate around that. And so I was a little surprised that that was a phenomenon that seems to be fairly fairly frequently pointed to as, no, we can't help you. Um, the fact that you have no crew is beyond our control. I agree with that. My wife and I, Chris, have gone to restaurants recently, and increasingly what we are seeing is we'll walk into the restaurant with a reservation. We see that half the tables in the restaurants are empty, and yet they say it'll be it'll still be 30 minutes to get your table. And then they'll sort of apologetically say, we're really short on staff. And that annoys me just going out for dinner, right? And I kind of blame the restaurant in a sense. I know it's hard for them, but they shouldn't have given me a reservation for 7 o'clock if they couldn't seat me for 7. When I called, they could have said, we can't seat you till 7.30, right? Or something like that. So if I'm going to complain about a restaurant, which probably is harder for them to keep people at the wages that they pay and things like that. Why would the airlines be able to get away with, well, we just don't have the crew. It's their job to have the crew. I agree. Along those lines, Ben, American announced uh, over the past week, I guess, that they were proactively canceling 31,000 flights in November, something like 16% of their scheduled flights. No doubt thinning their operations in the first part of the month before the busy Thanksgiving travel period and saving pilot and staffing resources. You want to make a prediction about how much capacity will get pulled down in the fourth quarter across the entire U.S. industry and any carriers you think that will not pull down capacity? I will make that prediction, Chris. I think every carrier is going to pull down some capacity. And my guess is for the industry total, we're going to see numbers that are something probably in the high single digits, maybe 8 or 9% of the whole industry, not the 16% of American, although they're 20 plus percent of the industry. So they're already you know, supporting that kind of number for the whole thing. There's a couple things here, Chris. First of all, even now, two years after the pandemic first hit or two and a half years after the pandemic first hit, it's still hard for airlines to predict seasonally. There are many people who think this summer, which was very full, might have been more full than it otherwise would have been. People are calling that revenge travel. I don't really like that term revenge travel. We've talked about that before because it has this negative concept. I like sort of pent up travel better. But as airlines were looking to schedule the fall and put out flights, they didn't have as good a crystal ball as they might normally would have had before the pandemic about what demand might look like in the fall. So some of American 16% may just be flights that 
back in April, May, or June when they loaded these looks like they would make sense. They're now realizing when they look at their bookings in demand, these flights really don't make sense. So we probably never should have loaded them in the first place. And I would bet that that probably covers about half of Americans, 16%. And then the rest is exactly what you said, which is trying to make sure that they're saving crew resources, will have enough for Thanksgiving and the December holidays and such. So that's why I'm thinking for the industry as a whole, it'll be something like 8 or 9% for the whole industry because not every airline was as aggressive as American about loading up fall capacity in the first place. So people will have different amounts to pull back for that amount. But everybody is going to want to make hay when the sun shines at Thanksgiving and end of December. And as they're looking at their crew resources now, their pilot availability, their flight attendant availability, they're clearly going to want to have that resource available. And the fall is a weaker travel period. Sometimes there's more business travel, but that has been a little bit uh, tougher to bring back in full right now. So it probably is even less painful for the airlines financially to cancel some of their pre-planned fall capacity because they're flights that wouldn't have filled all that much anyway, or they can combine onto other operations. Long way to say everybody's going to cut back some, Chris. Yeah, and in your world of supply and demand that you're so versant on, that probably blunts a bit of the price dips that we've been seeing for the fall travel season. So as supply goes down, price might come up a bit, and so will yields and maybe some stability on the pricing side. Well, Seabury Securities is a Seabury Capital Group company and a specialty finance and investment banking firm that boasts a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. And this week's show, our 150th show, is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Ben, let's take a quick tour around the globe on some earnings uh, news real quick. On the international earnings front, Korean Air reported a 22% operating margin for the quarter. That is astounding in the airline business. That was pretty much driven on the strength of their huge cargo hub in Seoul. I read one comment that maybe they should just get out of the passenger business altogether and focus on cargo. Turkish also reported strong results thanks to both passenger and cargo business success. And while Lufthansa turned a profit, it didn't wow anyone. And their struggles with staffing and cancellations clearly took a toll. 
And then there's talk of them looking to continue to consolidate with their eyes supposedly on Italia's successor airline, ITA. Who, what, and where should we be watching most closely on the international airlines front over the next two months, according to Ben Baldanza? These earnings reports did stress what you said, Chris, which is the airlines with large cargo operations or with the ability to carry a lot of cargo on their passenger planes did better than those who don't have as much of that. Lufthansa has a lot of their profitability tied into North Atlantic flying from multiple destinations. Again, Lufthansa not only has an investment in ITA, but they also own Austrian and Swiss, among some others. And a lot of that business is transatlantic. And the U.S. didn't make COVID tests not required until early in June. So there's probably a lot of transatlantic flying that didn't happen this summer just because of people saying, I can't take the risk that I'll get stuck. We all remember when Chris Sloan came on and told us about his 10 unplanned days in St. Lucia. And so I think cargo is the winner of the day today. All cargo businesses that fly airplanes have also reported good earnings. So as we look forward and look around the world, it'll be interesting to see the profitability of the Latin American carriers. There's a sense in a lot of media that Latin America is still struggling more with COVID than the rest of the world. You might see that reflected in their earnings. On the other hand, there's some consolidation going on there that could help too. And Asia continues to be such a huge market for aviation, and within Asia is a huge market, as well as Asia to Europe and Asia to the U.S. So looking at their earnings and the airlines that are able to sort of get back to profitability or aren't there yet as a function of where they drive most of their profitability will tell us a lot about the state of sort of worldwide travel and what's coming back strong and what is still sticky on the wrong side. Yeah, I think uh, you're right on watching Latin America, um, especially as they head into their, quote, summer travel season. Uh, In the Southern Hemisphere, I think I was reading somewhere that Azul actually reported a profit this quarter where LATAM did not. So we got to sort some of that out as well. You know, again, the unknown, like you said, is is always going to be Asia until that part of the world really opens up. We'll be right back with Bjorn Larson from North Atlantic Airways. But first, Airlines Confidential is made possible with the support of Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched depth of experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Uh, this week we have a special guest, 
Bjorn Larsen is the founder and CEO of a new airline flying out of Norway, Norsair. Bjorn, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Please introduce yourself and tell us about Norsair and also uh, your career in aviation. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, Honored to be with you. So my career in aviation, to start with that, that is fairly short. I have no airline experience prior to North Atlantic Airways, and uh, I'm totally dependent on my great team who have experience from various airlines uh, in uh, senior positions, but we have also brought in a few people in our senior management team that has no airline experience whatsoever, but that, that have been very successful in other fields. And, and we kind of think that uh, the uh, robustness of uh, people with solid operational experience and uh, the know-how of the airline business combined with new thinkers and people who are willing to ask the question why more than once uh, could be a good combination. So I think that sort of concludes my background. My background is actually in shipping, in maritime shipping, and I spent my entire uh, life as a ship manager and a ship owner. And uh, the similarity between shipping and aviation is that it's a very volatile business. So uh, if you don't equip your ship to be uh, able to withstand the bad times, uh, then you have sort of <laughs> no chance to survive in the long run. And my prime objective in shipping has always been not to go bankrupt because a lot of company goes bankrupt when when the when the bad time sits. Uh, and so far, I have managed to do that. Um, and and risk financial risk mitigation is extremely important in in that sense. And so that we can translate to the business. And that was basically that that started off North Atlantic Airways. It was the opportunity where we could acquire a fleet of uh, very modern very new um, Dreamliner 787s uh, at a record low price. That was kind of what triggered my fascination for the business. And then then the question came up, what are we going to do with it? Uh, are we going to wait it out and flip the aircraft or or do we create something we believe in? And, and we decided to go into the uh, highly competitive uh, transatlantic market with uh, a cost advantage, but clearly uh, with some of the disadvantages as well and we're we're quite aware of the uh, scale and uh, also other type of products and loyalty programs that our competitors have but we created a niche company that will be a low cost yet a full value airline uh, and we concentrate on point to point but we do have feeder arrangements so people can connect from various places on both sides of the atlantic so in a nutshell it's it it started off with an asset opportunity, but we have translated it into what I think is going to be a sustainable and competitive airline. Well, Bjorn, you already sound like an airline guy, so congratulations. You know, you started this company, like you said, based on the asset availability, but you also started sort of in the middle of the pandemic. Um how did you come to that decision to say we have these great airplanes let's start now versus maybe wait a bit yeah well uh, that's a great question actually and for us uh, we we did talk a lot about that when do we start operations which is kind of different from when do you acquire the aircraft the aircraft were to be acquired at that particular time because uh, there were a bunch of long-haul aircrafts, uh, even very modern ones, uh, left on the ground, and none of the typical takers were able to take it. They they were under government constraints or they received subsidies. They were definitely not allowed to expand at that particular point in time. 
and we saw it as maybe this is a once in a lifetime opportunity where where we actually can get something without a strong competition but we also got the flexibility to take over and start operations at a much later stage so we could have waited it out we waited it out most of, of 2021 we waited it out until we started operations in june this year and we could have waited it out until 23 if we chose to but we thought that uh, and, and we were trying to analyze the market. We were scared of starting too early because once you start operations, then you're sort of pouring out cash. You really need to get cash coming in as well. And we were uncertain about Corona, the uh, Ukraine war, uh, the oil price, stuff like that. Uh, uh, but then getting into this spring, we felt, well, this could actually be a good time. So we decided to start not with the entire fleet at once, but start a little carefully, walk before we started running. And our first flight was in June, and we started actually selling tickets as late as in uh, uh, 29th of April. And, and you are, <laughs> of course, fully aware that that is a very, very, very short window for selling long-haul flights. But still, we, uh, we managed to get 82% um, load factor in June, 86% in July, and, uh, and it's been very popular. So. Uh, I think we were all right by starting at the time. Maybe we should have started a little earlier uh, in hindsight and maybe even with a few more aircraft because the market has been better than we than we feared. But it's uh, it's better sort of to miss out on a little profit than go on a big loss. So, uh, yeah, that's sort of the background. So, Bjorn, let's unpack a little bit more your business model in the context of and correct me if I'm wrong here, full service, but lower fares, a lot of ancillary revenue and fees. You know, How did you settle on this plan and how is the market responding to that? Yeah, full service, of course, is uh, kind of an undefined term. But uh, what we do, we unbundle basically everything so that we are a low cost airline. We have a low asset uh, cost, as you know. We have a very lean and and uh, focused organization. We have a simple business model. We don't have a hub and spoke operation. We have none of that complexity. Uh, so that enables us to have a low unit cost. Uh, we do have two classes. So we have a premium class, which is something between a, a, an ordinary carrier's uh, business and premium economy, which is a full service concept in the sense that you, you get better space, you get free food and, and, and stuff like that. But we don't have facilities like uh, the typical frills of, uh, of, of uh, the legacy carriers. Uh, and then we have an economy class, uh, again, unbundled uh, for those who choose that, but we also offer bundled uh, fares, uh, which uh, has been quite popular. I would say it's been like a 50-50 of those who've gone unbundled and then bought certain products or, or nothing and those who, who went for the complete bundle fares. So our competitive advantage, I think, is our cost. We do have a lower cost than most of the competitors, and that enables us to have lower fares as a basic point, but they get even lower when we are unbundling them. So we are, to some extent, reliant on ancillaries, and we have actually a very high, um, high number connected with our ancillary services. And if I could follow up, Bjorn, are you comfortable talking about where your originating passengers are coming from? Is it an even split between the U.S. and Europe, or where do you see the momentum at the moment? Yeah, right now it's about 50-50. We thought perhaps it would 
it would be more Europeans and particularly Scandinavians initially, since we are more well known in that part of the market and we don't have a brand here. But surprisingly, in the initial phase, we had about 60% Americans on board. And, and then uh, a little later, the Europeans came after. So uh, we have been able to, to, to hit a string here in America, particularly in the New York area and also here in Florida. So uh, the, the routes we operate now are from, from JFK, from Fort Lauderdale and from Orlando. Uh, and we're adding on LA. And so far, all our flights have gone to and from Oslo in, in Norway. We're also adding London and Berlin and a little later Paris. And the market have responded very positively in all these markets. It's a very exciting, quick startup for Norse. More with Bjorn in a minute, but let me give you a reminder about our sponsor, Aerodata. Load planning for any operation is complex and time-consuming. Aerodata can help. Aerodata's load planning solutions computerize and automate the entire load planning process, streamlining workloads, optimizing load distribution, enabling airlines to maximize their payloads, and ultimately eliminating potential delays by flagging flights that require extra attention. The solutions also integrate with reservation systems, cargo vendors, baggage scanning, container operations, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and connect with your Aerodata team. And for airlines that have big business in both passengers and cargo, those are the ones who really especially need to go visit that site. So you mentioned that your first flight was in June. I think that was the Oslo JFK route. Can you tell us how in the last couple months your airline's been operating? One of the bigger stories in the industry is cancellations, delays, airport problems and things. How have you got off in your first few months? Yeah, well, uh, we have been lucky. I, we have sort of hit a little tailwind, I guess, but we, uh, we also have been aware of all the bottlenecks and, and chaotic problems people have have experienced. So we have tried to mitigate that somewhat. So we have had in June and also July and so far in August, 100% dispatch rates. So we didn't have any cancellations. And most of the flights have departed uh, or arrived in time. There have been a few. Uh, I think the longest delay we had was three hours and something on one flight. But other than that, it has been very manageable. And on our side, what we can control is the manpower we are supplying. So whilst we are low cost, we want to make sure that we are not trying to be too stingy on, on people. Because once you do not have enough people, that will cost you way more than if you have a few extra. So we are a little rich on pilots and, and, and flight attendants which I think in hindsight has been a very good strategy because people are sick, there there are issues, and having that little reserve capacity has, has served us well. The airport side, of course, we are subject to the same uh, forces as anybody else, and we have seen uh, in some places that there have been you know, slow security or cleaning services have arrived a little late and so on, but nothing that has made big problems for us, luckily. And then as we're talking and as the show drops, you're about to initiate, I think, four new routes, LAX to Oslo and Berlin and JFK to London Gatwick in Berlin. Do you look to kind of build some focus cities on both sides of the Atlantic or be a little more surgical in this point-to-point operation? 
our prime business is point to point. So we want to, to be in to operate in, in areas where there is bigger catchment uh, and also where we are able to bring cargo, preferably both ways, but at least one way, because the Dreamliners they have you know good bellies and, and they are good haulers for, for cargo. So that creates you know quite good revenue, particularly these days. Also, our idea is not to spread too thinly. Um, you know, first of all, we, we need those catchment areas. And secondly, if you if your operations is spread all over the place, you, you get more vulnerable for malfunctions, for, for crewing issues, for technical stuff, uh, but also for competitors' desire to kill you on a certain route. So for us, it's better to focus on less cities uh, and not try to fly to every corner of the world. We have said that we will fly in America and Europe. And... and at least one of the cities and one of the ends have to be a big catchment area. Well, you you brought up the issue of competitors killing you. So let's talk about Berlin. It's a very interesting city, a big city, but not a hub really for Lufthansa who focus their efforts in Frankfurt and Munich. So do you think by choosing Berlin, they won't be as watching you quite as closely? I'm 100% sure they're watching every step we are doing, and uh, they might know more about me than I do. <laughs> we have no illusions that uh, we won't have competition. Competition is great. It's, it makes us better, uh, and it's also great for the, for the consumer. Um, what they will do, uh, or others will do, of course, is beyond our control, um, but, but we expect nothing but uh, a great competition. So you talked a bit about your staffing uh, as you ramped up and that you're in a good place. How did you get there with, let's say, pilots and flight attendants and even management in a time when so many companies are struggling to find key staff, including in the airline business? Yeah, well, first of all, we started off in a time where there was a lot of redundancies, particularly in Europe. So when we, I mean, for the first 50 pilots positions, for example, we had 3,200 qualified applicants in Europe. And uh, we are flying the equipment that most pilots would love to fly. So we are ranking a bit better than, than people with, you know, smaller regionals, et cetera. They, they have, they're struggling more to get pilots. And secondly, we, we really want to take good care of people. We have always embraced unions. In my shipping career, I've always been very positive working with unions because they have worked very well. Uh, not only to protect the uh, the rights of the worker, but they're also there to ensure that there is a workplace in the future. And that basically means that they need to work in a profitable company. So if we work well with Union, it has been a great recipe for success in shipping. And I think the same is going to hold place here. So we have great uh, Union affiliations in, in uh, Norway, in UK, for example, for pilots, and in America for flight attendants. Um, or majority of our flight attendants are American. They are... Uh, based in New York, Fort Lauderdale, potentially other places in the future. We have a great cooperation with AFA, which is the union they are uh, they have chosen to organize. And um, they are also, uh, I would say, bringing into, a, into us not only the, the competency, but a great cultural aspect. We are a transatlantic carrier, and we, we would like to, to have a, uh, a culture on board that reflects that. And more than half our customers are American. So um, uh, we, we, we think, you know, we, we jokingly say that we are probably the most American airline that is not from America. And uh, I think that also goes in the, in, in the cabin. Um, 
but of course there is a shortage of uh, of people both uh, pilots and flight attendants and and we have to ensure that we have conditions that makes us uh, attractive in the long run but also we have to educate new people so that we bring uh, fresh people uh, who can find new careers in our business Bjorn, for an airline, especially a new airline, distribution is always a challenge. How do you break through the clutter to get in front of customers? Let them know what you're doing, what your fares are, when you're flying. Are you using the GDSs or not? Are you on travel sites? Can you just tell us about your distribution strategy? Yeah, we... uh... We have chosen not to be on the on the traditional GDSs because it's uh, it's very costly and and for us we, we have to focus on having low cost. At the same time, we have to be visible. So we are on quite a few of the meta searches and we'll be on on more of the platforms going forward. But most of our bookings so far have been directly to the website. If you are on a meta search and you end up on top of that search by having the cheapest fare the likelihood that you'll get some attention is is definitely there and it has been in our case but beyond that we we are working with uh, particularly tourist board airports uh, and uh, common interest groups uh, to get our name known in the catchment areas we are we are working with but a part of that of course we are doing some advertisement some campaigning it's all digital so you won't see us in tv ads or big billboards but uh, you might see us if you are searching for it for a ticket for you going to Europe for example and back uh, then we might target you our uh, algorithms might say well here are some guys who are interested for flying transatlantic and 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 then we might pop in pop up in your Facebook or in your other uh, digital media you've also got a unique business relationship with EasyJet in Europe and Spirit in the US to develop a better feed and connectivity on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, I think it got announced, unfortunately, the day of the JetBlue acquisition. So maybe people didn't pay attention. But how will that work? Tell us about it. And how do you think it's going to contribute to your success? Yeah, we, we think it's good. Uh, although we want to go between big catchment areas and have point to point business as the core business there are a lot of people who would like to connect from smaller places and working with companies like spirit and, and EasyJet makes it possible for passengers to connect from other cities or other countries it, it is powered by a platform called dohop and it is kind of a virtual interline agreement where our business model is the same so we are basically just responsible for our part of the product uh, and uh, and then if somebody can't get a flight, etc. It's Dohop that takes over and who are in charge of, of getting a new flight, a new connection and so on. So technically it's still two tickets, uh, but for the customer, it feels like one. And, and Dohop is, is the technical platform that makes that uh, possible. And that has added 600 more destinations for our customers. So we already see that, uh, and we just started this last week actually, but we, see we have a lot of bookings both uh, from EasyJet uh, and Spirit, uh, uh, who uh, for, for customers who want to join ours, particularly on EasyJet network, uh, it, it has been very popular. So then, I'm sorry, are your flights showing up on an EasyJet website or a Spirit.com site, or where are people seeing these? Well, they see them through meta searches, but they also see them EasyJet, for example. They have a separate site um, uh, which is EasyJet Worldwide, uh, where 
and the customer probably won't know that he's going into a different EasyJet site, but 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 he actually is. So when you're going to fly from Nice or whatever they are flying uh, via London to New York, we will pop up as one of the alternatives. That sounds great, actually. We're going to have the leaders of DOHOP come on the show in a month or two. We're talking to them now. It's a very interesting platform. So as we wrap up here, Bjorn, look out a couple of years from now. It's 2024, 2025. How do you define success for North Atlantic? Uh, I would say we are still here and we are profitable. That's success. And I rather take profit with 15 aircraft than running at losses with 30. So we are we, we don't have any plans to see a record growth, uh, but we concentrate on proper operations, low cost and uh, making money on what we're doing. And as a newbie to the airline business, what's been the most uh, interesting or fun thing you've learned since you uh, started this venture? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's a very good question. I think, I don't think, it is all the great people that I met in this business got to know, all the new relationships I made. It's, I would say it's fantastic. I really, I really love the, uh, the, uh, aviation business. I've always been fascinated by aviation, although I haven't worked in it before, but uh, now it is uh, way beyond that. So it's a people business, and, and that is what I think is so fantastic about it. What a great way to end this conversation. And we agree with you completely, Bjorn. We wish you the best of luck with North Atlantic. Hope to be on one of your airplanes at some point, too. Thank you so much, Ben, and you are both very welcome on board. Thank you. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Thanks again to Bjorn Larson for taking our questions. And now it's time for listener questions. Remember, you can send us your question via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the props. Ben, first up is a question slash comment from Blair in Pittsburgh. Love the show, but I think the two of you are too friendly to the airlines. I know they face many challenges, but you give them a pass far too often. My comment is about flight credit for canceled tickets and main cabin on the big three U.S. carriers. Rules for using these credits are Byzantine, and the airlines have underinvested in systems and training to make these credits usable for customers. I am particularly well acquainted with this problem in American. Phone, text, and in-person agents often contradict each other. Phone agents put me on long holds multiple times on one call to check rules and consult their help desk. You know that disgusting statement insurance companies make before talking with their phone reps, quote, explanations of benefits made on this call are not binding and may not be accurate. Well, the airlines are headed in this direction, a bad omen. What say you, Ben? Well, Blair, if this were a finer wine, I'd give you a fine. 
I will own the fact that we probably are too friendly to airlines sometimes. Having both worked in airlines, we tend to sort of understand the airline perspective maybe better than others. But your note is a great reminder that sometimes we need to be more balanced. And I agree. If you get credits from an airline, because of something they did wrong or a flight you canceled and instead of giving you cash, they gave you credits. Of course, using those credits should be easy to do. It shouldn't be unclear when they're valuable or when they expire or what they can be used for. And I basically agree with you, Blair, that what happened in the pandemic, and this may sound like I'm being too friendly to the airlines, but I think airlines who have never been particularly good at this got thrust into a lot more of this with initially canceling a lot of flights when the pandemic first hit. And then we've talked many times about the operational challenges this summer and what the secretary wants to do and such. So the airlines have never been great at this. And now they're in a position where they have many more experiences of having to deal with this. So probably a lot more credits out there and everything. I think this is one of the things that drove Southwest to say credits are going to be good forever. We're not going to let them expire. I've Not because that alone fixes the problem, but I think Southwest is saying, we know we're going to need more time. We know it's unfair to yank something away from someone just because we couldn't answer the phone quickly or something. So basically, Blair, I think you've pointed out something the airlines do need to get better at, and I appreciate you doing that. I certainly, and I'll leave it to Chris to say whether you will, I'll certainly try to be a little bit more balanced on some of these. But I do sort of see the industry having to deal with a lot more of this because of what's happened in the last two years, and they weren't good coming into it. So it's not surprising to me that the results are what you stated in your note. I'll add a couple of things, Ben. One, I think that the DOT agrees with Blair <laughs> based on what we talked about at the top of the show. So Blair, the cavalry's coming a little bit. And, um, you know, fair point, although I don't think we're here to be critics. We're not the cranky traveler. We're not going to pound on our desks. We're here to talk about the business, sometimes explain, sometimes observe, sometimes criticize, but certainly we want to stay balanced. So we appreciate the constructive suggestion. And then Lakeisha from Oregon asks a question, Ben, that um, this could get us in trouble, but it is a fair one. And it's one that a lot of passengers uh, have an opinion on. Do you both prefer the Airbus 320 or the Boeing 737 as a passenger? Well, I'll go first on this one, Chris. I'll be snarky at first and say I prefer the one that's going where I need it to go. (laughs) Because I'll happily get on either airplane. That said, if I were forced to choose and could choose, I'd probably pick the 320. And the reason I say that is the six-inch wider airframe, even though that doesn't sound like much, ends up producing either a little wider aisle on some airlines where you can walk around someone while they're loading their bag, or in most cases, a one inch wider seat. 
which you feel that comfort, especially after a couple hours, and generally overhead bins that are just a tad deeper. So Airbus takes advantage of that slightly wider cabin, and to me it ends up being a more comfortable experience as a result of that. What do you think, Chris? I'm with you on that. You know, I'm 6'2", so I'm taller. I can feel the spaciousness a little bit more as I'm walking. And then again, a little bit wider uh, fuselage. And, and then I got to tell you, the the other place I notice is in the labs. You know, I got to I got to bend over sideways and tilt my head to kind of get into some 737 labs uh, just because of the way the the side of the aircraft comes down. So um, those are little things, but um, the Airbus is a tad more comfortable. But like you said, they're both good planes. And ultimately, I take the one that's going where I want to go when I want to go. That's right. And I would also add to that that when searching for flights or thinking about flights, I would never choose one flight over another just because one's a 320 or one's a 737. Everything else would matter more, the price, the time, whether it's a nonstop connect or something like that. I agree completely. Chris, here's another good question. There are so many in the queue. This is from Trina in Denver, and it was sent before the DOT announcement we talked about at the top of the show about putting some pressure on airlines to improve their operations. Chris and Ben, I really enjoy your show. I've always loved air travel, and it's fun to get your perspective and a behind-the-scenes look. I understand that the federal moratorium on airline share buybacks will expire soon. Delta has already said that it plans to begin a significant share buyback program as soon as the mandate is lifted. My question is that after this summer of dread, should the moratorium be extended? The airlines could spend money productively on training, hiring, and salaries rather than on dividends or share buybacks and executive bonuses. Will this increase cynicism about airlines and their commitment to customer centricity? Great question, Chris. What do you think? It's an excellent question. And I'm not going to just answer Trina's question, but Blair, I hope you're listening. Delta has no business buying shares back right now. Um, They've been running a lousy airline and they need to fix the airline. And the best way to provide some shareholder values to run a great airline. And um, I also think there's a huge pressure on labor costs that is looming and airlines are going to need cash for that. I get that shareholders have hung with airlines over the past couple of years and you want to create value for them. But again, traditionally in the airline business, you don't have like mom and pa with their 10 shares of AT&T stock they bought in 1946. You don't have those kind of investors. You have institutional investors who are churning in the market. And so I think that's somewhat elusive in the context of shareholder value right now. The airlines need to run great operations and they need to invest in their companies and in their people right now. And if I was a labor union leader and I saw money going out to shareholders while we're trying to get to the table, I'd be pretty unhappy. 
And finally, a comment, Chris, from Peter in Tucson about our conversation in the last show where we talked about noise complaints from the new neighborhood near Dulles Airport. And for those of you who maybe didn't hear that, we weren't that friendly to the homeowners. And we basically said they knew where they were buying. Well, Peter writes, I'm pretty sure there was an airport proximity and noise disclosure statement in the ream of papers signed by buyers of homes in the Birchwood development. I signed one in 1992 when I bought my house in Ashburn, which is a few miles further from the airport. A friend of mine who worked for the FAA for years would occasionally be tasked with responding to noise complaint calls about airport noise. He would ask the caller if they remembered signing the disclosure document. When they admitted they did, he would simply ask why they were having this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Peter, my man, you are the real deal. Thank you for writing in. Excellent point. It's always in the fine print. And I agree. I'm pretty sure that they should have signed some kind of disclosure, which just, which provided information about the airport's proximity in the unusual event they didn't know was there. But uh, absolutely, you're right. Uh, I love the point by the FAA rep back to homeowners. And it, it gets back to what we talked about, which is why is the Washington Post giving this complaint oxygen? Why didn't they ask this question too? And consider this a, a closed matter because all of these homeowners, as frustrated as they are, knew where they were buying and should have known what to expect. So as we give a wrap to number 150, my shout out is to Bessie Coleman. She's not just the namesake of a road near Chicago O'Hare Airport. She was the first African-American and Native American woman to hold a pilot's license, as many aviation buffs know. And the 100th anniversary of her first flight was marked on August 19th with an American Airlines flight from DFW to Phoenix that was staffed completely by African-American women from the customer service agents to the ramp, maintenance and cargo crew to the flight tech and the cabin crew. It was a really nice way to commemorate the celebration and hats off to American for pulling this off. Absolutely. That's a great one, Chris. Now going to current times, my shout out goes to Zoya Agarwal, who's a current senior pilot for Air India. She's the first Indian woman pilot to fly an aircraft above the North Pole on a flight they were flying. And she did that with an all-woman pilot team that conducted the world's longest air route from San Francisco to Bengaluru in India, which covered the North Pole. And Zoya was also just inducted into the San Francisco Aviation Museum, making her the first living thing to be inducted in that museum. So congratulations, Zoya. If I fly on Air India, I'm going to ask to be on your flight. Well, that wraps up this week's show. Thanks again for your download and for listening. We hope you'll join us again on episode 151 next week. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.